Big data has gotten too big. Whether you're a B2B marketer or a consumer brand, your data needs to be viable, relevant, and accessible so that Starista can help you retain customers, acquire customers, and make it personal. Welcome to the Marketing Stir Podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're going to put in your ear. I'm Vin, the producer here at Starista. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders and get their take on the current challenges of the market, and we'll have a little fun along the way. In today's episode, Albert Thompson, Managing Director at Walton Isaacson, joins the Marketing Stir this week to chat with AJ and Vincent about consumers' attention. Give it a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, what's going on? It's me, Vincent Petrofessa, the Vice President of B2B Products and Partnerships here at Starista and still Interim General Manager of Access B2B. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, the Marketing Stir, we're here. It's so great talking to you. We are on the eve of Thanksgiving week. Great week. Spend some time with family and friends, but also some great time to talk to amazing people. Thanks again to all of our listeners in the Marketing Store. Thank you so much also for coming up to me in such a nice, positive way when you see me at conferences now. That's new. No one ever recognizes me at conferences. Sometimes they'll recognize my loud jacket that I have on to go with my loud Italian personality, but now people are recognizing me for like, wait a minute, aren't you the guy who hosts along with AJ the marketing stir? I'm like, it sure is. It sure is. So it's nice. That's new. And again, when I say people, it's like five people. Let me not make make it like I'm a beetle for uh, <laughs> for <laughs> nice, nice. That even made our co-host and CEO laugh. But let's before we get to him, you know him. Let's talk about Strista. Just for like 10 seconds, take it easy. That's it. It's uh, Starista. We are a marketing technology company. We own our own business to business data, our own business to consumer data. We help through our technology people target those data points to help them get new customers through our own email sending platform, our own DSP. Email me, Vincent at Starista.com. That is how confident I am that we could help. I just gave you my email address. The other confident. I have is in that laugh you just heard, ladies and gentlemen. That is my commander in chief here at Starista. Ladies and gentlemen, my co host, Mr. AJ Gupta. What's up, AJ? Hey, Vincent. Uh, pretty good day for me. Uh, your fantasy football team did not turn out quite as lucky, but uh, I would no. say, all in all, I had a pretty good weekend, even though it's been raining here and supposed to rain here for the next seven days. Wait a while. Well, better not rain when I get there because I'm coming there for, uh, you know, AJ's in San Antonio, Texas. I'm in New York City. I'll be out there for our summit December 8th. And it better be nice. It's, you know, why am I coming to Texas in December? I better be like warmer weather. So let's uh, fix that. And yes, you're right. This weekend, you're, you know, you're listening to the podcast. It'll be a few weeks later or so. But the my fantasy football teams, all four of them lost and then the new york giants got whooped on by the detroit lions as in like twice before Owen 16 detroit lions but hey you know you got to get better you just got to get better that's what happens but, yeah uh, it pays uh, I, I was fortunate enough to have jamal williams on my team so come on uh, oh man of so course you not, not that i want to celebrate your misery but it definitely paid yeah. off to have it oh yeah you, uh, I would have celebrated it too. AJ, uh, as you know, is very new to, to uh, fantasy football, but he has been rocking it out this year because he read a few books. That's what CEOs do. They study up 
and they uh, make sure they know going in. I love it. I love it. AJ, we've got a great guest today. Let me talk about it. So it's rare like that, you know, some of our teammates here at Starista, a lot of times we, we find our guests, our teammates were like, hey, you've got to talk to someone from this organization, Walton Isaacson, that's the organization. You have to talk to someone that's a great organization and a great guy that we're going to be talking to, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, a warm marketing stir welcome. We love our referrals internally to Managing Director, Digital Innovation, Albert Thompson. What's going on, Albert? I'm good, gentlemen. How you guys doing today? And first we are. Months, thanks for having me on the show. Always amazing. Appreciate the energy and the love. Of course, we, you know, I met Albert, not in person yet, you know, with, uh, if I, we met, I feel like we'd hit it off. I say that with every guest and AJ is usually like, I don't think that person liked you, but uh, that's what uh, AJ tells me a lot, but um, I like everyone. So, and, and when I first saw uh, Albert and I saw the background there, one of my, you know, he's got one of my favorite movies uh, of all time in there, uh, Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2, if you're tuning to us on on YouTube, you'll see it. And I was like, all right, I can get down. I, you know, Martin Lawrence is one of my favorite, uh, you know, comedians of all time. Underrated, Albert, underrated. Doesn't get the love that like the Chris Rocks and the Chappelle's and the, and the Carlin's get. But I said, uh, and I like Will Smith as an actor. I know a lot of, a lot of opinions on Will lately, but I look, <laughs> I like Will Smith as, as, uh, as an actor. So I knew already, I was like, all right, we'll get along. Absolutely. Well, you know, look, you got to give homage to who set the pace. So Martin was very much an innovator. He normalized the idea of, you know, uh, comedic satire literally in every phrase. I think the biggest thing, his greatest gift was improvisation. You know, yeah. never repeated the same thing funny twice. You know, it's interesting. You start to look at that, what it takes to have some digital acting in this modern era. You almost have to behave the same. The idea of constantly sort of reinventing the narrative. So... I got much respect for him on a lot of fronts beyond just uh, on screen. Yeah, no, me too. I uh, I always liked him from you know not, it's not easy hosting Def Comedy Jam, and he no. was the he was the original, and he set the tone. That's uh, that's how it is. I you know I know a little bit. Uh, I know a thing or two about hosting some uh, events or shows, and even comedy shows, as those listeners some of them know uh, that. But it's not easy. But that's awesome. But Albert, let's get right into it. All right. Talk to us about your role within the organization. I love your title. It's, it's a title that you don't see all the time. Again, something that you, know, you as the person drew us to, to talk to you and also uh, wanted to dig into the title. But tell us about what you do at Walton Isaacson uh, Digital Innovation. I love it. Managing Director of Digital Innovation. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, look, Walton Isaacson, or WI, as we refer to as, you know, full service shop, uh, really started as kind of a branded entertainment, creative and production agency in its first sort of early, early generation. Uh, founded by Aaron Walton, who had a huge entertainment background, neat story. His first uh, line of work was really dealing with Michael Jackson during the uh, Cola War. So that was, that was his first taste of you know, working in the influence business and entertainment. So you can imagine that kind of ethos bring into creating a shop it wasn't like just another agency, as they say. You know, the same way they say the world doesn't need another DSP, the world doesn't need, didn't need another agency. <laughs> um, so I've been there. This is year 15. So it's been a great run. Wow. Um, always been there, digital guy, kind of the first 
digital media, I guess, hire, you would say, into the agency to really help sort of build out that capability. Um, I think, Aaron, you should always make this notation of, you know, Albert's always the guy a couple years ahead. So this isn't a self-nominated quote, that's what he said. And I think what he kind of discerned was making sure we kept an eye on innovation and actually keeping a title on it, not being left behind, uh, you know, huge into certain tenants like content marketing as a model. And I think he was on that train a decade and a half ago. Wow. Whereas you start to see the industry buzzing about, you know, seven, eight, 10 years ago, and some brands still trying to figure out that was very much what he understood and looked at entertainment as a lens to sort of galvanize and connect. So my pulse has always been to go into the future. So I've always kind of pictured myself as more of a futurist mm -hmm. that is to go see what's coming to come back and tell people how long they have. I'm the guy that comes back and turns over the sands of time and says, okay, you got to have got a year or two years before you nail this thing. And it's absolutely going to matter. So I think that's the idea. You know, I was living and executing the presence because as they say, clients want an evolution, not a revolution. But you got to tell them what the revolution is so they can evolve to it, to a point. So that's really been the, the ethos that I've always carried. So I'm very much interested in what's breaking, what's coming. I, I'm that guy that I don't have a challenge reinventing myself or sunsetting myself in the next moment for the next next. Uh, so yeah, I mean, background is marketing. I'm a marketer's marketer. I make it very clear. People call me a digital guy been buying media for over 20 years so i've seen much of what we buy give birth but i'm a marketer's marketer at heart i'm always about understanding the consumer first that's uh no i love that that story i love the way you explain that albert so we, I, we're going to get into later some questions about like you said digital and you know being there for 15 years that was when digital really started to, you know peak so i want to hear some stories about that but a, a fan favorite question of ours is how you got into this crazy industry of ours uh, to, begin with, to begin with, right? That's always, is never usually a straight path to it. So talk to us about it. Yeah, it's an uncommon story. I knew I wanted to do advertising in high school. I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, by the time I was a junior, like, this is what I'm going to do. Wow, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that is unique. You don't get that often. No, no, not for a digital guy. And then, you know, I went through grad school, um, was still a, a focus on doing marketing. And then it was interesting. I'm like, I don't know if that industry really pays. So did a stint on the brand side and then found a startup interactive agency when they were interactive agencies here in Maryland. Uh, and that, that agency at the time was uh, pretty successful. It was bigger than all the big ones. It was bigger than Beyond Interactive at the time. Uh, and then just kind of cut the bug and said, look, this is a fast moving base uh, business, digital advertising. It's going to be progressive. It's always going to change. Suited my wheelhouse. Um, then it did a few stints at a series of agencies prior to the WI to really get sort of locked in the business. So I dare say that uh, I, this this may be my final resting place. As they say, I, I might die in this business, but we'll see, man. But I've always liked the energy, the creativity, the hustle, the ideas. Uh, and I think a lot of people understand that marketing, much of it is supply chain management. So I was always drawn to the more creative, innovative idea side, which gets you into advertising promotions side of the ecosystem, less of uh, shipping and logistics, which, you know, that is what it is. Robert, tell us a little bit about what are some of the channels and strategies that you guys focus on? I am a follow the consumer where they are, you know, where the attention is going. I, I don't, I, while there are channels that I have affinity for on a personal level, on a business level, I, I only care about where the consumer is going. So when people talk about the attention stack, I'm like, where's the attention going? If it's going into certain facets of paid social like TikTok, you got to start moving advertising to where Mindshare is and where you can move Mindshare. You know, I was uh, been buying CTV seven years before most people were trying to spell the acronym and figure out what it meant. 
Um, we were doing it. We've been doing uh, digital audio on the programmatic side five years, and most people were like, "What's a podcast?" Uh, so you know, I've I've always looked at what's burgeoning in essentially you know what's next. Uh, but I'm very much about chasing the consumer. Look, the consumer's the only one guaranteed to win. We can all fail. We all get fired when they make a different choice. I think most brands just don't realize that. So I am very consumer agnostic in terms of where we need to be, where brands need to play. I don't carry biases for a channel or partner because they're my favorite. How do you think shopping behavior is changing with the rise of social media and online in general? We inherently are always shopping now. That happened during COVID. You know, like we're all getting SMS emails, you know, getting bombarded ads, but we're all, we're all in a shopping mode. Shopping is no longer seasonal. It's no longer for the weekend. It's literally moment by moment. So when you think about that hyper-consumerism, that means the opportunity for someone to pop into the funnel uh, literally can happen within the minutes, within the hours. So the traditional, you know, sort of model of a consumer profile, what does it even mean? I think it means something from the core base. But I think in reality is that the opportunity has never been more or hyper-vigilant, as, as I would call it. Uh, and I think that has massive impacts when you start looking across categories that had very traditional models of about, you know, how you got somebody into an insurance plan or how you got them to renew the lease on their, their car or how they bought, you know, uh, home copiers. Um, you know, the fact that women are on the hunt for the next beauty hack, you know, hour by hour, moment by moment. I, I think brands really have to dial into this, the speed of the consumer is what I would say, which is just daunting. And I think most brands in this era are out of touch with the speed of the consumer and lack understanding and intimacy around the speed of the consumer. And that speed, you know, beyond moving from channel to channel is very much around consumption and consumerism. And I think that I think I'm most fascinated with this consumerism happens well beyond ad exposure, as they say, above and outside the funnel. And I think that's going to be the, the biggest required pivot for brands to understand is how are life events shaping preferences before ad exposure actually takes place. Albert, I wanted to talk to you about something you, you mentioned there, uh, getting and talking to your clients and partners about testing new channels, talking about, well, you know, people were doing connected TV before people even knew what it was. And then I know that's a, we've heard from our listeners and even internally sometimes, you know, it's uh, tough to get some of my B2B partners over to connected TV. I'm like, no, they're there. People are at home now. Uh, talk to us about, without giving, you know, the secret sauce away, but how you initiate some of those conversations. Is this, this is something that you're seeing uh, within your experience and position where you're like, hey, I think this is the next thing that we should be on. Talk to us about that process a little bit. It's interesting. You know, a lot of my conversations start with a point of friction and they're inherently always there. So we've done a lot of multicultural, as you can imagine, there aren't that many TV network options. Let's say there are four on the Hispanic side, there are three legitimately on the black side, and then there's some platforms that kind of play across culture. There's not 300 of them like there is for general market. I'm being facetious, and it could be more, it could be less. When you get into streaming platforms, it just explodes. So the idea is like, look, TV is still the ultimate lens, the idea of sight, sound, or motion. But when you add the targetability and precision and data analytics and ID, uh, that mobile has benefited from since the early days, then then it's the killer app, as I would say. Like nothing can beat it. When you talk about a, a brand being able to run their beloved commercial spot, but with all the other parameters that digital provides at its best. So I'm very much like, look, we can't buy TV in a particular region or market at a localized level. 
or they don't have the audience targetability because we're looking for the consumer. I don't look for reach. I look for buyers. Mm -hmm. If you say, hey, CTV is the answer, but you can still run your spot and you can target people who are still around your favorite shows because you have that bias around those shows or networks because you as the top marketer likes to watch it. So you want us to buy ads around it, even though that doesn't equate to making money, but okay. Then they're like, oh, well, that makes total sense. Let's do it. It was the same thing with digital audio, you know, a lot of radio listenership went down during COVID. Granted, we were already doing it. And I'm like, look, nobody's in the car. So nobody's listening to your radio station driving and nobody's streaming XM. Guess where they are home? Streaming. So you can, but you can say, hey, we can do all the level of advanced targetability. We can have all layer on attribution. So you should absolutely look to move into this space because actually it is better. You know, while it may not offer some of the direct opportunities to sponsor or integrate into the content, that's a different form, which I get. And we do that too. When you get into finding a buyer, the consumer, then you, they, you start to understand the business case can't, can't be refuted. And again, when you talk like a marketer's marketer, when you talk business, marketers get that because that's literally their job. And I think that's what's helped me to enlist and put these more experimental tactics and channels in front of people and give them the business case. Because that's the one thing they respond to. I don't really get emotional about what it is, what it's going to look for so much. More or less, like, you should be mapping this on top of your model anyway. And I think that's gotten the receptivity of getting brands to lean into it um, in the early stages of it versus waiting to everybody to sort of come online. Nice. No, I, I like that. And, and you know, you mentioned, Albert, some, you know, mediums that kind of have uh, struggled, if you will, like, you know, the... Uh, XM radio during that particular time, but let's talk about industries. Is there any industries that you've worked with that have struggled, uh, that that have flourished in you know in the while you're working there? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I think the, the category that struggles because of the regulatory oversight is pharma, because there's so hmm. many provisions around the FDA and DDMAC uh, around you know, what you can and can't do from a marketing perspective. So they're always looking for a, quite a, quite a, quite a backdoor or a wormhole to get into the business. I think finance is, is slow to adopt because it's the nature who runs them. I mean, you may have a rocket mortgage at one end that's very progressive because they're like for the digital age. And then you have some of these major commercial banks that are still getting over the fact that nobody walks into a commercial bank anymore. And so the, the digital evolution, they, 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 they're getting over the brick and mortar evolution. Uh, but, you know, we've seen great progress in the automotive sector, even particularly with our Lexus client. I think automotive, aside from the fact that they are one of the heaviest spenders, uh, is more willing to carry sort of a skunk works mentality to try new things to see, do they stick? Uh, I think that's, that's one of the big industries that's, that's done better. But nobody beats beauty. Beauty is because they understand the speed of the consumer the, the virality of how the consumer works in their category, how products get an uptake that they can hack their, they, those are categories that as startups, they are growth marketers by trade in the early years. So this stuff they get and live by. They just, they move into mainstream media in chapter three of their evolution. Like they back into TV, they back into outdoor, they back into radio, but they are so digital first. They're probably the best at it. Uh, amongst all the categories. Albert, tell us a little bit about Web 3.0. You, uh, our producers tell us this is an area of interest for you and how it's important for marketers. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've done a few presentations on Web 3. 
uh, even more specifically the metaverse. And I think what people don't understand, it, it's a universe being built actively. I mean, you have entire cities represented of major countries that are that are building a metaverse version of their their city. I mean, that's that's like Seoul, Korea saying we're going to have a metaverse version of Seoul. That's that's massive. And then you have any small municipalities doing the same thing. Like this is, you know, people buying land in the metaverse. People will be selling land in the metaverse. I mean, this will be a parallel universe of sorts. So the prudence that's needed amongst everyone to understand how that's going to impact their sector couldn't be more profound and, and imminent. When, you know, I think the biggest thing is understanding the building blocks. Like it's not HTTPS like it is for Web2. It's blockchain. You know, it's not uh, Slack communities, it's discords. Uh, it's not PayPal, it is a wallet. Uh, it's not a QR code, it's an NFT. There is an ebb and flow, a tit for tat in terms of the difference in Web3. And people need to understand how those building blocks will roll over to new experiences. You know, it's going to collapse a lot of the best of the best of Web2, but take into a dimensionalized experience where you actually get to be present. Why does that matter? Because being present means uh, less disruption. It's kind of like gamers in a sense that gamers aren't multitasking because gaming, it's undivided attention and you're probably trying to win. So in much of the Web3, it requires ultimate attention uh, above all else that happens in any other genres. I mean, uh, maybe there's a little bit of multitasking when you're live at a concert, but not a whole lot if you're trying to really catch your favorite act or your favorite comedian. So I think that those rules of engagement, people need to understand very early on, got to understand the building blocks very early on, but there will be companies that will not, not make the Web3 evolution. They won't make the turn because it would require an overhaul of their thinking. You know, as, and I think Gary Vayner had said it best. He was like, yeah, don't bring your internet brain to the blockchain. It's very different. And because I'm a consumer first person, this notion of the consumer blockchain it's going to be very, very profound. It's going to be like the old days when, when consumers ran the marketplaces, like where they sold and traded fresh fruit and fish. And, and that was the beginning of commerce, as they say, before everything went mass and scale. So there's a lot of elements to it. I think the other thing is this experiential design. An event planner could kill it in the metaverse because you have to design environments in the space and the actual intimacy. It's very different than a Web 2 that is mostly two-dimensional. One of the things that strikes me about your uh, profile and uh, what you talk about is the evolution. A lot of things uh, you've adapted and learned uh, to help your clients. So what's one advice you would give your younger self uh, that you know today that you didn't know when you were younger? Oh my God, there's probably like 50 stocks I would have invested. <laughs> Let's like start there. I remember, I remember I found an old newsletter I saved on Bitcoin from 20, might have been 2016, and I kind of filed it away. And then I never looked back at it. And then I'm like, oh my God, had I bought it then, I'd be out the game. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing is this idea of signaling. You know, they, they talk about, you know, that Gen Z rather use TikTok than Google search. It's this idea of social signaling. They're looking for it trending. So if you guys want to pick a hot stock, you, you can't Google is it a hot stock? It's just going to give you details about the company. You want to see the signaling, the chatter. Is, is there momentum? Is there velocity, as people say in the packaged goods business? I think what people need to understand is when new technologies emerge, you have to really 
look for and understand the velocity behind such technological innovations because that has everything to do with where where it is going. I think people spend too much time reading press releases. They deal dial into the hype machine. They make a decision instead of trying to find the velocity like you're 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 looking for it on the dark web. And I think that will tell you what things you need to invest and invest time in to understand where the evolution is essentially going. I think people dismiss stuff and they take comfort in the fact that other people dismiss it as well. So they're like, oh, okay, I don't have to worry about it. And it's like, no, that's not a thing. And look, sometimes people just don't want you in the sandbox. So they actually send you the other way where they turn around and dump a whole bunch of money into it. You know, Albert, when you said that, I couldn't help about the stock thing. I couldn't help but smile and think <laughs> about that scene from Forrest Gump where Lieutenant Dan, he said uh, to Forrest goes, you know, we invested in a fruit company. And he said, we're not going to have to worry anymore. And it was Apple. Uh, and it was Apple. But you know what's even crazier is that movie was made in 1994. And imagine, you know, it's like even even further. So, yeah, it's so funny that, uh, you know, you mentioned that. Albert, let's talk about data. You know, data means a lot to us here at Starista and, and I know at consumers and, and, and what you do and what you talk about. What where you know, as far as the, the primary concern these days over data, navigating it, privacy. Talk to us a little bit about that. Some of the yeah. challenges, really. Yeah, I think people don't realize, like, we're going to be in a ma major data revolution as we turn the corner. You know, if you've been following some of the uh, lawsuits, you know, you saw that Oracle uh, got sued for data breach, Sephora, Snap, and they're more coming. So that's a major retailer. It's a container for a lot of brands. That's a major walled garden. And that's one of the biggest third-party data companies on the planet. So we're going to enter an environment where it's table stakes for people to get sued based on what I say, lack of transparency in data usage and consent. And the other thing is the industry is doing an amazing job confusing people, third party, first party, zero party, yada, yada. I mean, I don't know what party's coming next. I feel like I've missed a party. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know if zero party or, or, or right. the second party. I'm like, what is a second party? Anyway. Right. But when we get to it, I mean, the reality is the world we're going to is a zero party, uh, consent based, you know, consumer controlled data future. That, and I know I said a lot, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to get consent. They're going to have to agree. And people are going to control how long and how much you get to see in a way that's actually monetizable back to them, very Web 3 ish. But that's just the reality of it. Is. You're circling the drain on third party, waiting for a lawsuit. First party is going to be the same because, you know, their terms and conditions, privacy policy, and company websites. But that does not say how it's being used for consumer insights, reselling, retargeting, uh, how it is uh, for upgrading, you know, your lease, your subscription. It doesn't say all that. All it says is a promise about what we won't do. It doesn't say every element about what we will do. And that's why the consent-based model is going to come. I got introduced to a company called Reclaim. And the notion of it is actually reclaim your data. And it is a, basically a, a, you know, consumer consent-based model. It's called it zero-party data. It actually allows you, the user, to monetize it back to any of the platforms or apps that are using information. I mean, but that's the premise of Web3. That's what that's very much about. And I think every brand, every category, even the publisher side is going to have to, you know, face the future of transparency that that may be the model that's going to power into the future. Uh, mm -hmm. Just because once general counsel of, of major companies gets involved, they are not going to be akin to rolling the dice and being in somebody's court of law on a technicality. 
Um, so that's that's what I see in terms of the the future of identity. And while look, it's paramount because the ability to understand who's in front of you has everything to do with your ability to make return revenue against the same audience base or profile people who on a lookalike basis are very familiar to your your uh, core customer. The good side is that the younger generation, Gen Z, less up in arms about the sharing of information data. I'm sure they would like to monetize and make a little money back. Wouldn't help. But I think at the end of the day, they're going to be a lot more liberal with their information, in particular if they get all the bennies tied to it. So I think beyond brands having to rethink data, they're going to have to pay it forward in a way that pays off to the user. The user's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm glad I gave up the information. Look how you're rewarding me. So I mean, in a snapshot, I think that's what I would see coming on the horizon as we get into 2023. Yeah. No, and, also, and, and, and to that point, where do you think the obligation falls to monitor that data privacy and usage? Is it back on the companies? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're the brand, you're the ultimate one who is accountable. Uh, forget a, a DSP, third-party platform, you know, forget uh, an agency, they're stewards, but you the one who sells the product for which you're trying to map identity down to product design. And look, when the information really accelerates, brands can take intimate information about their consumer and really start designing product around uh, what the needs and asks are, you know, responding to that idea desire. Because look, in advertising, we're always chasing down that one thing, first moment of truth, final moment of truth. And that gets, that gets a bit murky when you don't really have and pinpoint the identity you're dealing with. But when you're actually designing product around uh, your consumer base, that's that ultimate moment of truth. Like at the product design level, like we made it for you, boom, it's here. You almost didn't even have to advertise it. Because sometimes they say that overly aggressive sales is crappy marketing as a derivative. So I think what brands are going to start to understand is we need to focus less on the selling proposition through advertising. It's very promotional heavy because that's where we've gone the past half decade. Everything is based on a promo instead of designing product for the outcomes consumer wants. But that starts with identity and being very transparent how that's going to be used or having layers of identity thresholds from your consumer, from people who are involved in the design process because they basically were vomiting everything you need to know about them to people like, well, you can use it at the tertiary level for, you know, some, some, third party related activities, but I'm, I'm not going to give you full disclosure to who I am. I think that's the other thing. We're kind of in this all or nothing proposition. You're either giving it up or you're not. Instead of making it like membership uh, based on how much you give up, this is what you, we get access to and this is what you get rewarded with. So I think that's a model that needs to be experimented with in the early days, as they say, before it absolutely matters and starts wiping companies off the planet. Albert, one of our staple questions has to do with LinkedIn. I'm sure with your profile, you get quite a few junk messages. Some of them may be good, but mostly uh, spam. Uh, what's a message that gets a response from you? And what's one that annoys you or is a pet peeve for you? You know, the thing about LinkedIn is that I've learned because I you know, have a lot of partners in the DSP business with engineers. A lot of it's are bots reaching out, uh, similar to when you get an email. And look, when people sit there and say, I studied your profile, I can help generate leads. I'm like, I'm not interested. Like you don't, you actually don't know the body of work. Me personally, professionally, you don't know the company. If you knew the company, you would know that's not how we operate based on your model. I think people are just fishing and running the algorithm against numbers 
we're going to cast out 100. We only need to get uh, 8% back. And then we make money. I, that I can't get with. I mean, I'm more flattered by people like, hey, I've seen you speak like the subject matter. They have some dialogue like they were actually attentive and watching it. I've found some people that said that, but they weren't even in the room. So they don't even know what I said. So how are you going to sell me <laughs> what I said? Look, I could totally suck. Uh, but hey, I, I guess all you want is a, a you know fish on the line and, and you know some level of conversion because you're trying to hit conversion numbers as a success rate. I, I think there, there's a lot wrong in people just trying to hit a number to make a number. So I, look, I think the great thing about LinkedIn is it has this uh, the, a hyper level of positivity. So it's not like Twitter where everybody wakes up grumpy and says, "Let me get on Twitter and 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 and, and work this out like I'm co-counseling myself." Uh, so I like the fact that LinkedIn environment is a lot more positive. People are trying to connect, but I think how they're inbounding around it lacks an uh, in, in intimate connection as to why. You want to be engaged by people who are well-read. And too much of the outreach on LinkedIn is like, you're not well-read. Uh, and that's probably what I'd say is like turning me off uh, just in terms of some of the some of the outreach. Yeah, by the time this episode comes out, Twitter may not even exist the way things are going. <laughs> <laughs> Those are facts. Yep. Hey, what one of the questions we always ask is, how do you guys do your own marketing, and how does uh, you know how how's that going for you through kind of a pandemic and uh, oncoming recession? Yeah, and look, I mean, advertising is so much of a relationship business. You know, I mean, you got to reach out through the extensions. You know, I think the agency has done a great job of mining old networks, and Aaron Walton has been a master of that, uh, and that's huge because it's credibility. And you want people to sort of be able to vouch for the body of work. I think we've done it by more way of momentum than hard selling. Look, the average agency, as you know, is not great at promoting itself. But I think we've been fortunate that, that we've never had to run and market promotions. We don't need to buy ads in magazines or trade magazines for buzz and press. We've, we've gotten it to a degree. But when you're largely in the segmentation business, in particular multicultural, you have to spend more time sizing up prospects than receiving inbound solicitations. Everybody's not, not real about it. There's a lot of underinvestment in multicultural DEI. You almost have to fact check back to the brand. Like, are you serious about this? Like, are you good at this? You got to be good at this. You got to be really committed to this. So it's not one of those all takers conversations. Very different in general market. But when you're passionate about cultural segments or DEI. Or just segmentation in general, the fact that you're going after specific consumer profiles, those are specific prospects in the marketplace. And there are less of them than people would believe. And that's why I think a lot of the traditional model for promoting yourselves don't necessarily work. And look, I always say, it's all about laws of attraction. You gotta create attraction. If you want people to work for you, work with you, work alongside you, cut a check for you. Uh, and I think the agency has done a phenomenal job over the years of being very attractive to do business with. We, we agree with that concept because uh, you know, AJ actually started this company originally uh, to, and to kind of the name stirring things up is multicultural, right? Just given his background and that's how he kind of started to help companies market that way. And we work with a lot of companies looking to reach that audience and we really, uh, different audiences and we really put our pride in that. Um, so yeah, we, we totally agree. And, and I also agree with what you said, uh, you know, at least be in the room, if you're going to mention that you heard me speak, I love that point. I, I always say to people, we get a lot of PR agencies who reach out to us, Albert, who want to get their, uh, clients on 
the podcast, for which we don't take many people. We don't take many, maybe three or four total. But we always say, like, you're going to reach out to me to say, hey, I love the podcast or I listen to the podcast before you get your client on. Little things, little things. Right. Like that. It's all in details. And I'm I'm probably more of a detail-oriented guy than not. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been told that, so I look for it. But at the end of the day, it's like time and attention, and it's valuable, so you don't want to waste it. You know, it's one of those things, like, if I wanted to list you, I'd be like, yeah, I came to see you perform. Like, I like this job, particularly just grabbed me. And then you're like, oh, okay, so you appreciate the craftsmanship, the work in it. And I think that's the things, but look, that's just missing in the world in general beyond human engagement, because people have a hard time just shaking your hand and looking you in the eye. Things that we were taught as masterclass, basic principles are like everyday struggles for people. Uh, So yeah, I'm I'm with you on the page like 100% about understanding the intentionality of engagement. And I think that's the same thing a lot of brands lack today. It's like, yeah, you're not really intentional with that. Like you're trying to hit a number. I'm just one of the numbers. Yeah. Well, yeah, we had had a great guest on that focused uh, their their marketing focused on the lgbtq community and he he was talking about there was like well there's so many people that just like put a rainbow on the uh for the for one month and it's just like wait a minute you know it's gotta just that's not it you know you have to that's not how you reach people it's not genuine but uh, i agree also uh, a lot of times after my comedy shows where people are like hey uh, oh, I love your energy up there. Uh, you know, like, well, yeah, but did you listen to the jokes? Like, did you like any of the jokes? I was up there, you know, um, that happens too. But Albert, as we're about to wrap here, let's get to know you personally. Obviously, you know, you, you probably have very similar taste in movies uh, than me. Uh, you know, I take it you're a movie guy, but also what do you like to do in your spare time? Were you always uh, living in Maryland area there? Yeah, I mean, I've uh, been here 23 years, you know, uh, you know, had the fortunate benefit of marrying my college sweetheart. We had classes together, went through grad school together. Uh, we have twin girls that are in college down at uh, High Point. So absolutely uh, proud of that. Uh, but look, I think we, you know, we've always been close-knit family, hands-on. Uh, but I think I always joke that my wife and I always, we're always game planning about what we're doing, even with our kids. You know, I thought it's analogy, you'll love it. Offensive, defensive coordinator. Why you guys are talking about stuff like that? You know, <laughs> we're game planning. Like some days, got to lock down the defense because we can't score any points, and some days it's a shootout. But that's very much life. So I think I've always carried that philosophy, and a lot of the things I've done work-wise. I think the other thing is, I've always treated myself like a digital good. You know, digital goods are never finished. You know, phones are obsolete. You know, in a month. Mm-hmm. You know, like most consumer electronics are always because somebody's the next next. And I'm like, look, if you can carry yourself like a professional like that. You can always carry that mild paranoia that you could be sunsetted. So you're constantly trying to build the next next and, you know, level of intelligence and that level of layering. So you're constantly sort of moving. And that's a pursuit a lot of people just don't have. But I, I don't know any other way of sort of uh, functioning. And those are the things that I think people see when they see me. They're like, this guy's always sort of moving in the space, moving right. on to the next, this next sort of conversation. It's part of the reason I've guest spoken about so many different things given what may consider more of a narrow domain in my background is like, oh, that's fascinating. I'm going to go understand that and master that and operationalize yeah. that and go teach that and go execute that. And I think that ethos is, is a bit of a lost art in this sort of, this sort of day and age. Uh, but that, I know that's been part of my sort of professional acumen over the years and that some of that carries into my personal life. And yeah. uh, I, well, I hate the word incrementality because people would use it in digital. I'm like, ugh. But I like it as treating yourself as you're underdeveloped. You're constantly in development. 
And it, again, if you have that pursuit, you'll end up someplace, maybe magical, special, don't know. Uh, but definitely more of a unicorn status than, as they say, blending in. Or someone wrote, wrote up to me and said, you know, I, I see you came to stand out. Most of these people here are standing in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I take the same approach. I try to, I try to take that same, same approach. And no, we, uh, and that's uh, one of the things that drew uh, us to you. And I'm so glad we had you, Albert, because there was a lot of different topics that we could tackle, you know, just based on yeah. uh, you know, all your, your background and, and what you've done. So we really appreciate that. So uh, Albert, a final thought, if there's something you want our, our listeners to take away from this podcast, Lay it on us. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the ones I've spoken about is there's certain facets of advertising and marketing that have, that have made the modern day marketer lazy. And I'm, I'm really big, you know, big on this modern day market. I've studied marketing my entire career, even though I was doing a lot of advertising. I studied the CMO in that position for about a decade, in particular when they were only lasting about 12 to 18 months. Yeah. And I think there's two more much mediocrity than amazingness simply because um, People have let the greatest existential threat to human beings and marketing creep in and accelerate, and that's automation. But that's because the human element is missing. At the end of the game, the machines are only as good as the people programming. And I always repeat it. The machines are only as good as the people programming them. I think we've let machines over-program our lives to which they've lost the intimacy in the touch. And that has to do with, yeah, you don't let Fox do the outreach on LinkedIn. You do it personally. Let Box do other some accelerated automated functions, not the piece that is most impressionable. And I think that's missing in marketing. I think programmatic is done in some degrees a disservice because people aren't programming in programmatic to be intelligent. The machines themselves can be fascinating, but when there's no thinking out in front, it's like, oh, you just don't want to do any thinking. You just want to turn the machine on and let it do its thing. And, and I guess that's enough to keep your job. I'm just going to say three, this, in a Web3 era, that is not going to work because we're going to return. When you look at an entire universe that is based on peer-to-peer -peer connection, you can't automate the human element of connection and intimacy when that is very much in human endeavor. And that's my charge to people is like, you're going to have to get back to the basics of the beginning, kind of like when five guys opened its first restaurant and they knew everybody who walked in and it was a very personal, uh, localized relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Blockchain means we're going back to that. People who want to connect and build. And I think there's some elements of Web 2 that need to be sunsetted because we've gotten away from that all-important sort of human element in marketing. I love it. I love I love that five guys reference because you're right. When it was that was what separated them, that was made it different. It was your neighborhood that kind of knew your name. I love that. Albert, this has been awesome. We appreciate your time today. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Albert Thompson. Managing, Managing Director, Digital Innovation, Walton Isaacson. I'm Vincent Petrofessa. That's AJ Gupta. This has been another episode of The Marketing Stir. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to The Marketing Stir podcast by Starista. Please like, rate, and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, please email us at themarketingstir at starista.com. And thanks for listening.